Welcome to the Story Talks Back. Almost everything that we remember, think about, or imagine is a story. Stories entertain us, inform us, and even define us. They have upsides, and they have downsides. This podcast explores the power of story in every aspect of our lives. I'm Dave Stanton. Thank you for joining us. Born in 1934 in Geneva, Switzerland, Dr. Bertrand Kramer moved to New York City at age 26 and graduated from the New York Psychoanalytic Institute. A pioneer in child and infant psychiatry, Dr. Kramer has maintained a private practice for the past 27 years. He's authored eight books, including The Earliest Relationship, co-written with Dr. T. Barry Brazelton, and The Scripts Parents Write and The Roles Babies Play. His 100 or so articles include Evaluating Mother-Infant Psychotherapies and The Transmission of Womanhood from Mother to Daughter. He is taught at Harvard University and Geneva University Medical School and currently lives in Switzerland. So Dr. Bertrand Kramer, it's great to welcome you to the Story Talks Back. I really appreciate your time today. Okay. Good to see My you. My pleasure. Um, I'd like to start out by asking you about stories and storytellers in your past. So, um, you know, stories that may have meant a lot to you when you were younger, um, or storytellers in your family who may have made an impression on you. Is there anything come to mind when I when I ask you that? Well, the only thing that comes to mind is that I come from a family that is very old. And basically, we are Huguenots. Huguenots, you know, people yes. fled from different countries because they became Protestants. Right, right. And uh, many people in my family have been uh, writing things, mostly in the field of science. But the one who was probably the best storyteller was my grandfather, because he was a historian and uh, he wrote a lot about our family and about our country. Uh, Geneva being a country that was linked to Switzerland in 1815 mm. and at, at the uh, Vienna Congress that took place in 1815 and that uh, reacted to Napoleon's uh, possession of a good part of Europe. And that's when uh, Switzerland started to coalesce and Geneva joined Switzerland. And my grandfather uh, was a diplomat, but also a writer, and he wrote a lot of stories about our country and its link to Switzerland and to Europe, and how my family in the past uh, uh, took uh, lots of political responsibilities in our little canton. 
You know where the canton is in Switzerland? It means like a state, like a state in the United States. Okay. There is Geneva, a town, and around it, there is a, a lot of land. And this is a canton, C-A-N-T-O-N. Then there's another canton called Zurich, another one called Basel. And okay. each one of these cantons has a very interesting history. And those are the first history, I guess, I, I heard about in my family. It's the story of my ancestor. Uh, one of them was, for example, in the uh, 18th century, a great mathematician. And I bear, I bear his name. He was called Gabriel. Kramer, mm. and my second name is Gabriel. So we have, lot, we have a lot of family history that my father and my grandfather told us a lot about. I would say those are the first stories that I heard about. And do you think they had a, a strong effect on you in terms of what you wound up doing or? The, the one thing that it did on me is uh, that I had to be uh, a good professional uh, to be in the lineage of my family because they had uh, important guys. Mm. So you felt it was important for you to do something that was really substantial? Yes, uh, if not substantial, at least uh, valuable, at least good. <laughs> uh -huh. And uh, then in my adolescence, I did a lot of reading and a lot of music. I, I, uh, I learned piano and organ. Oh, nice. So uh, I was very oriented toward uh, the past through music. Hmm. And I played a lot of piano and I, I played some organ. And uh, that played a role in a way that I was, at, I paid attention to what was poetic and uh, was aesthetic, if you want. And then uh, I started writing things when I finished my medical school. I went to the United States, as I told you, and that's uh, when I was in Bellevue, which I'm sure you know about. I wrote my first article, and it was really about a very interesting history. Uh, you probably don't know what a Munchausen syndrome is. Yes. Is that familiar to you? Yes. So it's uh, basically the story of patients who come to the hospital in a very dramatic way and they complain, for example, about tremendous pain in the stomach. So doctors become very interested, sometimes baffled even, and uh, they end up very often on the operation table. So these guys, have two, three, or even four scars on their bellies. 
and uh, it's they are very good at telling stories because doctors believe them. They believe them to the point of operating them when it's really not necessary. Mm. So this is just amazing. And then I started studying studying these people, and I realized that all of them had a very intimate story with medicine as children. Either their father was a doctor or a nurse. All of them had a past with a strong uh, link with medicine. Wow. And then as they are grown up, probably, that's what I thought, they wanted to be patients again of somebody like their father or their mother who was a, a nurse. So that was a very interesting story. And it's also very interesting storytelling because these guys are extreme, not only guys, girls too, um, right. are a very convincing. When they tell you, you know, I'm bleeding, I, I pain, you've got to believe that. And then as you sort of moved into focus on children, how, how did stories play into your practice? How did that this sort of- is very, uh, very typical of psychiatry and of the type of psychiatry that is boosted by psychoanalysis. We have to take a story. When a patient comes to you, uh, after you say good morning and how are you, what you tell them is tell me your story. What's the problem? And that's when the Pandora box opens. <laughs> and that's when they tell you things that sometimes you could never believe. So they are so amazing stories and sometimes so bizarre. Like, for example, uh, right now I'm interested in transgender mm. children. You know what that is? Right. Sure, sure. Those are children who, since the age of three or four, will tell their parents, I am a boy, when in fact, anatomically, anatomically, they are a girl. Mm -hmm. And they are absolutely convinced that they are a girl. They are so convinced that they become convincing and they convince their parents that they want to have a change of anatomy. And it works very often. And what is so fascinating is that it's as if they believe they were someone else. That's what the anatomy had given them at birth. And their conviction is you cannot move uh, their storytelling is so convincing that people go to the point of treating them with hormones, for example, hormones that block the puberty, so they don't have a puberty. And after that, if they continue with the conviction of being of the other gender or of the other sex, they will go to very important 
operations, surgical operations. For the girls, removal of the breasts. For the boys, removal of the testicles. And then they have to take medication for the rest of their life. When you hear these stories, you are just flabbergasted because it's so bizarre. It sounds like a, a kind of a monstrous nightmare. And these children suffer an awful lot. And now they are no longer called uh, uh, identity problems. They are called sexual identity problems. They are called dysphoric, gender dysphoric. Dysphoric means difficult to carry. Right. So the accent now in the diagnosis is much more on the suffering of the child and much less on the trouble of the sex assignation. So those are stories that are very amazing and they become more and more frequent today. More and more children in all the countries of the world will want to have a, 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 a change of sex. Yet, and now people are starting to be a bit careful about this. And in some states, for example, in Massachusetts, there was a law that was promoted to forbid these operations. And uh, the tendency now is to wait until they're grown up uh, to see if they still with their story, which is, I am not a girl, I'm really a boy. So this is the story that I'm in right now. But uh, there are a lot of other stories in uh, psychiatry, especially child psychiatry, because uh, now I have become a specialist in very small children, even in babies. Mm. And there is something called baby psychiatry now, infant psychiatry. Huh. And there, there is an association, the World Association of Infant Mental Health, which is prominent in the United States. And I've gone to a lot of congresses in the United States about infant mental health. This seemed bizarre at the time because those are very young kids. They are six months old, they are 10 months old, they are two years, three years, and they come with the symptom. And the symptom is narrated by the mother and the father. Most of the time it's the mother. And when you hear these stories, you are sometimes absolutely stunned because they create an image of the child and sometimes the child will follow the script that the parents have written about them. Example, a child who doesn't sleep. All parents know that young children have very often sleeping troubles. So they come to the psychiatrist and they say things like, you know, uh, I wonder what's the problem with my baby. She is 
uh, not sleeping at all. She wakes me up at all hours of the night. And I have to get up. I have to take care of the child. And the next morning, I am absolutely exhausted. And this can go on for months. And then you ask the parents, but tell me more about yourself. How was it when you expected the baby? How was it when the baby was in your bed? And then a new narrative appears. Well, I'll tell you what happened. It was, for example, my mother was very sick during my pregnancy. And I was very worried about her. And obviously, this disturbed my mood during my pregnancy. And I started wondering about my child. Is my baby okay inside of me? Am I expecting a child who will be a monster or will be sick like my mother? And uh, then when the baby is born and seems to be okay, the mother keeps worrying about the baby. And she worries to the point that a kind of anxiety permeates the whole family. And as you probably know, anxiety as a depression, like depression, is contagious. <laughs> so that uh, anxiety is communicated to the baby by the mother. And the mother has fear of separating from the baby at night because she feels that at night anything can happen. Hmm. And that's what is often the beginning of the severe sleep disturbance because the mother will go see at the child and see if the child is okay. But doing so, she finally wakes the child up and she takes the child to her arm and they start dancing together. And this co-creates a sleeping disturbance that can become extremely severe. But what is interesting is that you have to listen to the story to know what went on. Here in that story, it was because the mother's mother was very sick and the anxiety was transferred onto the child. And then the mother interfered with the child's sleeping. And that's where the problem started. So you see, stories are always in the forefront in psychiatry, just as in psychoanalysis. And then the mother will tell you more things about the child. For example, uh, my child is exhausting me. Uh, I'm sure this child, this baby child, is very egocentric, is egoistic because he wants always my attention. This child has really become a burden. And that's when the relationship starts to show problems. And the mother becomes uh, nervous with the child, often will shake the child, or on the opposite, will withdraw from the child because she experiences the child as taking too much time and too much effort from her. And then you have to listen and say, tell me more 
about uh, this child being so egocentric and egotistic. And she says, well, you know, uh, it's a little boy, and in many ways, he resembles my father. And my father was somebody who was very authoritarian. He thought only about his needs, and he drove my mother batty. He really drove her crazy because he was asking so much from her and demanding so much from her. And now you realize and you tell the patient, it seems that you have transferred your concern about your egotistic father onto your little boy. Bad luck, because, you know, if that continues, he will look like your father. And that usually is the start of a therapy where you can show the mother that she's still so inhabited by the father's presence and figure that she wants to promote the same, same relationship with her boy baby. And that's the start of the therapy because you can show her, you make a mistake. This is not your father. This is your child. Wake up. You are in a dream. You are in a nightmare. And little by little, if you're lucky, and if you know a little bit how to deal with this, you will see that the mother will calm down and that she will look at the child with new eyes. Mm. And those are the eyes of reality. <laughs> and it pushes the nightmare far away. This is what happens very often. So in a way, the stories are interfering with reality. I didn't get that. The story? I said, are, are the, is it true that the stories are interfering with reality? Exactly. Through? Yes, they interfere because uh, these stories come from the fantasies the mother has, where she has an unresolved relationship with a father with whom she felt very ambivalent. And what is so strange, you know, in human life is that people will want to relive relationships even when they were very painful. Mm -hmm. That is called the trauma theory, you know. You relive traumatic events of your childhood, which become like narrative, you know. I had a very strong and authoritarian father who just exhausted my mother. This is the scenario. And they repeat it. And they ask the child to become their partner in that horrible story. <laughs> so you can say, yes, these stories interfere with the reality sense and the acceptance of the child as he is. Right. Do you have a sense of when children begin to experience stories or to have stories in their minds? Yes. It is very, very difficult to be sure about the beginning of a child's understanding of the parents' uh, vocal emission words. But there is another way of making a story with a child, 
is through interactions. The mother who holds a child in a way that is too tense. The mother who is too excited with the child. The mother who is too nervous or anxious about the child. All this goes through actions, through attitude, through the, the type of the voice she uses, through the type of embrace she does with the child. So the first dialogue is a dialogue through action. The first scenario is a scenario through gesture and vocal uh, timber, vocal uh, type. So that's the first story and that starts with birth. You know, you can have a mother who at birth says of her child, my God, he looks just like my father. And she grimaces because she's not happy with him. And then she transfers their thoughts into actions and attitudes that link her to the baby. And now we know a lot about how to study these early interactions. And the first people who looked into these early interactions were mostly Americans. Uh, people like Spitz in Colorado, like Bob Day, who's still in uh, Colorado, like Daniel Stern, who was in Geneva, and other people of that sort. And there was the famous pediatrician, Barry Brazelton. This name is probably a bit forgotten now because he died three years ago. But Barry Brazelton was a kind of a genius because he knew how to speak with babies. And he was able to show to a mother in the day after the birth, how the baby is reacting. For example, to sound, to touch, to movement. And then he was teaching mothers about their, their children's resources, basically, and their competence. And that reassured many mothers who were so afraid that the baby is very vulnerable, is very weak. Mm. So he did a good job in teaching mothers about babies. <coughs> and he himself studied a lot the type of interaction that goes on between uh, a baby and a mother. And you wrote a book with him, right? I wrote a book with him, yes, because I spent a year working with him in, uh, in the children's hospital in Boston. I wonder... Yeah, go ahead. He was a remarkable man because you could not resist this guy. <laughs> he has such charm and such uh, ability to communicate through gestures, through the voice, so that you really felt that he was talking to babies and <laughs> that babies understood what he said. And that played a very important role in his work because people started to realize that a baby is a person, not only a little thing, but a person with ability to communicate, 
ability to be frustrated, ability to be furious. And the baby became a person and was more and more respected, as we see now in pediatric wards or in neonatology, for example. Neonatology units are terrible for small babies, were terrible, because there is a lot of noise of all the apparatus that is around, and there is a lot of light. And that excites the baby, and it's negative for them. So people have realized now since about 20, 25 years that you have to have a much more, a much softer approach to uh, babies in neonatology, especially with the babies who are premature, you know, who can uh, be uh, very, very small and uh, they weigh just a kilo, you know, or uh, what would be a kilo in, uh, in pounds in the States? I don't know. You know, not sure, yeah. I, I, but very, very small, very few pounds. <laughs> so that you see, uh, people realized in our field that small babies are receptive to all sorts of uh, influences. And probably the histories that mothers have in their head about the child influenced the baby ever since birth. Do you feel that any stories are actually communicated through DNA that we are born with stories? That's a very good question. I don't think anybody can answer that question now, but we see more and more uh, problems with babies when their DNA is not in shape, when their chromosomes are sick, when there is a missing link in one of the chromosomes, or when some genes are too stimulated or not enough stimulated. So we know this affects the child. But storytelling, that is a very difficult one. You know, people like Jung, the famous Swiss psychoanalyst, and Freud, the Viennese, Viennese uh, scientist, believed that we have a kind of memory that goes through generations, and that some events of the past of your ancestors can still possibly affect you. In what way it is not known. But uh, many people believe that, you know, that we live with traces of history, probably mostly traumatic histories that have marked in some way, have a mark in the genes. So it is possible that 20 years from now, people will tell you, yes, this person is disturbed because his great father, his great grandfather went through a concentration camp, you know, or something like this. So those things are possible, but we don't have the way now to uh, prove it. I don't see you now. Okay, I see you. I guess I think about um, 
you know, something like the Holocaust, right? To have survived the Holocaust and have that in your family, you know, such a huge trauma. And that's so connected to story, you know? Yes. Um, it feels like it must oh, somehow change you at the molecular level, right? Right. Right now, we don't know about the molecular level, about story. But we know that people who spent and gone through Holocaust uh, have very severe uh, memory problems. I mean, no problems with difficult memories and uh, thoughts. And they suffer up to two or three generations later. So uh, we don't know if this is transmitted through molecules and genes or whether this is mostly through storytelling that is uh, given through memory. I wonder, you know, just talking about what you've been saying, you know, is on the one hand, it seems like stories are a solution to trauma in the sense that you can express what happened to you, right? But on the other hand, it has the potential to exaggerate or um, somehow create a, a greater importance somehow, or, or, or that the story keeps getting repeated so much that, that um, you can't get past it. You know, do you have a sense about how stories yeah. and trauma work together? Well, you, as you know, in a trauma, like severe traumas, like the guys who came back from Vietnam, for example, the soldiers, that they very often have repetitive dreams that are really not good dreams, because a good dream should allow you to go through what happened to you during the day and make it somewhat more livable. But there, it's the same scenario that is repeated again and again and again, and you don't come, come out of it. We don't exactly know what causes this repeated fashion, but it is clear that one way to try to get out of it is to get the person to talk a lot about the trauma, to describe it to the most minute details. And little by little, if emotions come with the telling of the story, in some cases, these traumas get better. And so it is important when people have traumas to allow them to put them in speech. So we go back to stories there. They have to invent or recall their own story about the event. And when that works well with the therapist who is a specialist in traumas, because it's a very special issue, they can sometimes get out of it. But it is so amazing that something so traumatic is attached, like glued to your memory system. And we really don't know exactly why. But again, it must be something uh, in uh, the molecular aspects of the brain, in the neurons, 
and in the hormones that uh, are in our brain. We know, you know, that we have plenty of hormones in the brain, like the famous serotonin, who is called the, uh, the hormone of feeling good. Serotonin helps you to feel good. And the new medications for the last 20 years against depression called uh, antidepressants work to keep serotonin uh, flowing in the system at a high rate. Otherwise, it goes away. So serotonin is a hormone that uh, is very useful when the, in the treatment of especially depression, but also anxiety. It seems as though, you know, and I've experienced this myself, you know, the parents frequently want to change the story for their children, you know, that they grew up with a certain experience and they know they don't want their kids to have some of those experiences. And so they react in ways consciously or unconsciously uh, and treat the children differently. But it seems like that can produce a whole nother range of problems, you know, that, you know, you solve the, the one problem and you create another one. Do you have a sense of, of how often that is uh, involved in, in some of the cases well, you deal with? It's quite frequent. We call these secrets, family secrets. Parents often have done something that they feel should not be known to the rest of the family, like for a father to go with another woman, or for a woman who have had an incestuous relationship with her father, or uh, a trauma like a child abuse in the parents and uh, most often parents don't want their children to know anything about this because they are convinced that this will traumatize them in a way they are right but what happens is that these secrets creep out in some way and finally come to light and are more or less understood by the children will then ask questions to the parents. Usually when they are adults, they turn to our parents and they say, listen, it seems to me that uh, our father was uh, going out with a lot of girls. And you, mother, you are crying a lot about this. Is that correct? Or is it an impression that I have? So that parents have to know how to answer this. And obviously, when the child is adult, you have to tell him the truth, tell him or her the truth. When they are small, it's more difficult because you don't know if it's going to be understood, one, or to be accepted and dealt with by the small child. So the parents believe they have to shield the child against the possible trauma that this will pose. I mean, but to answer your question, there are lots of secrets in all families. 
do you do you, do you have a sense that traumas really are healed that you know these stories oh, are eventually oh, yes. dealt with oh yes it does happen it does happen with the help of uh, as soon as possible after the trauma also it's important to do it soon after the trauma like if somebody was in a, a awful accident or was threatened by somebody else or was abused sexually or otherwise, the sooner the better. And you have to go to a therapist who knows what to do with the trauma and start talking about it and trying to get a story out of it that makes sense to the person and where they realize that it was not their fault. Most often this is the issue that they expose themselves to something that created the trauma. So yes, in many cases, it is perfectly, uh, the therapy works perfectly well, but you have to use often medications with it, like the medications I talked about before, antidepressant or anti-anxiety. What about, you know, when you're dealing with, um like parents and how they treat their children, how, how much do you consider sort of the larger societal stories that are going on? You know, like, um, you know, the forces that are affecting parents um, from the outside, not just from uh, yes. the, the, their own childhoods, for example. I understand. I go back to the transgender drama. Transgender uh, problems, have become very, very frequent. And more and more children go through uh, medical treatment, hormones and surgery to change their gender. Parents may be very receptive to the child's conviction that he has to change sex, also because they hear a lot about transgender children. There is a lot through the media, especially, about this. And there is a kind of conviction that many people have that you have to go through this medical and surgical treatment to help the child. And in some papers coming mostly from the States, uh, professionals feel that children uh, have gotten better after the change sex. In Europe, people are more cagey about this. But to go back to your question, there is a lot of uh, attention in the public about gender now. You know that binary gender, man versus woman, is now put in question. And most people, I mean, not most people, but quite a few people believe that gender is something that is fluid and not categorical, either man or woman. And uh, so there's a lot of things on, the, uh, on TV and on social networks about the merits of considering that gender is fluid. And this might very much influence the parents 
of a child who has a gender dysphoria, as it is called now, and it might influence them either to go in the direction of let's go through a endocrinologist and a surgeon or the opposite. So that this is a very good case where the environment and especially the media environment plays an important role to the point where it might really convince some parents that this is what they should do. This is one example where the environment plays a very important role in the parenting of a child who has a gender problem. Now, but do you, you know, feel that, that people in your profession pay enough attention to stories and the nature of stories as as input to their treatments and, and how they treat their patients? I would say in people who have been trained with the psychoanalytic background, they have to believe in stories because Freud, uh, who was the biggest uh, psychoanalyst, uh, was a fabulous story writer. His stories are just beautiful. And he will always, he has always said, you have to listen to the words of your patient. You have to make sure that his stories will come out. That's why you put him on a couch. So he feels like he's a bit more relaxed and he doesn't have to look you in the eyes. So he's more free to talk about his stories, which Freud used to call free association, you have said something, but then comes the next piece and the next piece, and again the next piece, and the final product basically is a scenario. It's a narrative. It's a story that the patient says about what happened to him last night when he fought with his wife, for example, and when he felt so guilty about it, and what happened that made him fight with his wife. And it becomes a whole narrative that usually in a certain time, the patient will relate to his own childhood. So there are narratives that stem from childhood and there are narratives that are modern, that are today narratives. And very often when you do psychoanalysis or or child psychotherapy, for example, you see that both mesh finally, and that there is a strong link between narratives of today and narratives of when I was a child. I guess that was kind of my final question for you was, you know, when you look at your own life, do you feel that you were able to um, rethink some of the stories that were given to you by your parents and really create your own path? Or do you still feel like they had a, maybe a, 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 a too strong influence? You know, uh, being an analyst, I've had to go through uh, one or two psychoanalysis. So I've looked into that a lot. So a psychoanalyst who has gone through a psychoanalysis usually will tell you, you know, I've gone through all my stories. 
the stories that I received from my parents and the, and the stories that I created myself about my parents, which is a different story. Mm. And they will tell you that we, with psychoanalysis, this is one of the main achievements, is that you have understood why you are so afraid today of taking the train, for example, and link it to a story of your past where a train event was traumatic. So I would say that if you can go through psychotherapy or to a talking cure, which would be the best way to uh, talk about this, a talking cure should allow you to rethink the stories that you believed in your childhood and look what was right or what was wrong, maybe. Maybe you distorted reality as a child. You know, there are patients who tell you, I'm sure and I'm absolutely sure that I was beaten by my father. And in fact, when he goes and talks with his parents, he realizes that this is something that he invented, that he fantasized. The father never hit him, really. So that in storytelling, you have in storytelling, you have to take into account what comes from the parents, but also what the child created himself as a kind of small storyteller. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Do you have any examples of that from yourself that you maybe created your own story about your parents? Um, Difficult. Did I invent stories about my parents? Uh, maybe, maybe I thought that my father was too severe, too strict, too authoritarian with my mother and with me and uh, my brothers and sisters. And in fact, now he's dead now, a long time. I've come to realize that he has done a lot of good things for us. Mm -hmm. And that I was afraid of him because he was a bit somber. But there was not really good reason to be afraid of him. That would be a typical example. Mm. Well, Dr. Kramer, it's been wonderful speaking to you. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you. And really let me know what happened with it. I will. I'll talk to you soon. Okay. Thank you. Very good. Bye, David. Take care. The Story Talks Back is produced and hosted by Dave Stanton. The music you're hearing now was written and performed by Christopher Daydream. The theme music at the beginning of our show is an excerpt from Play by Merlin Twelfthoven, performed by Carlos Quartet as part of their 50 for the Future series. Please subscribe to the Story Talks Back on Podbean and check us out on Instagram. See you next time.